You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today as a guest speaker, we have Zane Jaffer, currently the partner at Bluefield Capital and previously the co-founder and CEO at Vangel that got acquired in 2019. So in this episode, we'll talk about the acquisition, how Zane got to it, how Zane grew his company and how he raised his money. So Zane, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Vangel. Got it. So... I've been causing trouble with technology since as long as I can remember, probably the age of 14, <laughs> always pitching people my big idea. And it wasn't until the later stages of my career that people took me seriously. Uh, well, actually, taking that back, when I was about 16, my voice broke pretty early. So I was able to pick up the phone, call people and convince them they needed a website. So, <laughs> always interested in technology have um, run numerous startups that have been big failures and I had a quite a good outcome with my last company. It was acquired by Blackstone for $780 million and we were pretty capital efficient having raised only $25 million. Nice. That's impressive and just great introduction, you know, <laughs> absolutely love it. Um, Probably, yeah, we'll start with Bungle and then we'll move on to discussing what you do now with uh, Bluefield Capital. Uh, so, Bungle, let's start with uh, the start. How did you start Bungle? Why did you start it? Well, like with any company, it's um, probably the outcome of many pivots. And Bungle is based on a simple idea that people watch video. And when people watch video, there's only one way to make money, really, and that's to either charge for the video or to show ads. And so we were focused on that. And when the mobile revolution, when apps started to gain momentum, we realized if people are watching videos online on YouTube and they're seeing ads, if people are watching videos on TV and they're seeing ads, why can't we build a platform where people watch video on their mobile phones and we power that. So we got to that uh, through a series of pivots, but the idea was always video is going to be big. Let's figure out how to make money from video. And at this point in time, when people were building mobile apps, people looked at it the way they look at console gaming, where you pay for your games. You buy a Sony PlayStation, you buy a Nintendo Switch, you're paying for the cartridges, you're paying for the CD. People thought, well, if we build a, an application for the mobile phone, let's charge for it. And I was, I was horrified at that. I thought the content should be free. And when I said to developers, make your content free, the obvious answer was, no, we need to make money. And so that's when people started experimenting with in-app purchases. And in parallel, some people tried to put ads. But the ads were so horrendous, honestly. When you played these games, these ads would pop up and they'd crash the app. You wouldn't be able to get out of it. And it was a frustration for most people. And well, that was the state of the industry at the time. And that led me to um, build a really beautiful ad format. And it was unique too, because we weren't just trying to show ads that you see on TV. 
right? You're not playing a game and you're seeing an ad for Coca-Cola or for Mercedes or for a deodorant or shampoo or whatever. Here we thought, why don't we show an ad for another application? So you're playing the Candy Crush Saga app and you might see an ad for Angry Birds Rovio or Super Mario or whatever it may be. And that idea took off like crazy. Mm -hmm. Got it. That's actually a really interesting start. And the concept is great. Now it's kind of obvious, to be honest, in 2020. <laughs> but, uh... well, people didn't get it. I mean, people were like, I understand you'll have a video ad on a website because you just scroll mm -hmm. up and down. I can't get my head around the idea how you're going to show a video on a mobile phone. The screen size is small. Very logical, by the way. This is VCs mainly telling me this, right? Um, always the VCs who, who, you know, had a hard time understanding this idea. And I understand that, right? Because if you're playing a game, where are you going to show the ad? You're going to pop it up. And so we had to be really intelligent. And what we did was we we engineered the process so that maybe when you die, there's an opportunity for you to either pay a dollar to revive the character or watch a video ad, and then you get a free life. Or if you want to get gems or if you want to buy a sword or you want to unlock a level, you watch video ads. So we really found that people were redesigning their applications for the use case of video ads. But at the time, of course, when we were pitching, it didn't exist and people couldn't get their head around this concept. That's awesome because now that concept is like literally everywhere, like even when I'm playing on my phone. Same thing. I'm dying. I'm offered to, to buy. I'm sorry about that. I apologize. I know there are far too many ads now, and uh, I'm <laughs> somewhat responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. I completely forgive you. Completely. Anyways, uh, let's move on. And actually, I want to ask you this question uh, for quite some time. And you mentioned that you were originally from United Kingdom and you moved to the US. Uh, my question is, when did you decide to move to the US and why? I moved across in 2011, 2012, somewhere around that period. And the real reason is because we couldn't get funded. People in the UK at the time didn't understand our idea. And there was too much focus on revenue. And we were the type of business where you needed a little bit of venture funding to build out the product. So we got accepted into an incubator in San Francisco, sort of very similar to Y Combinator. And when we got that lucky break, we packed our bags and we, we moved across. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Right. And that's that's a nice move, honestly. It worked out really well, so congrats. Uh, but a lot, I mean, not a lot of my listeners are foreigners, but like I would say only 15% of my listeners are outside of the U.S., but a lot of them are thinking about moving here. And the question that I get frequently is, you know, when should I move? My general answer is, you know, once you get accepted into some sort of accelerator or something like that. But yeah, that, do you think there are some other you know, uh, things that should move a person to the United States? So wait, you said most of your, you, most of your listeners are uh, abroad or they're in the U.S. but not in Silicon Valley? Most of them are in the U.S. I don't exactly know the specifics of the landscape in the U.S., but like 70% of my listeners are U.S.-based. Not sure which city they are in, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. So if you're asking when is the right time to move to Silicon Valley, whew, I, I agree with you. It's 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 good to have um it's it's good to have some 
platform like an incubator to be part of but i i did think to myself many times if i were to start another company from scratch would i do it in silicon valley um if you were asking me this a few years ago i'd say no way i would never do another company in silicon valley <laughs> too expensive very hard to hire engineers your employees are constantly getting poached but at the same time uh vcs this is where this is where the magic happens right there's a a wonderful feeling here and and there's a great if you're someone who thrives on competition wow you're a nobody here you know you got mark zuckerberg who made his wealth at 24 and you've got people that you know have just absolutely made it right have blasted like you know the the blasted through the goalposts so so to speak um but it's pretty difficult to run a company in the valley because of the labor costs now i don't know what the future of silicon valley looks like amidst covid 19 um, hopefully it's a 19 thing and stays in the past. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I am not sure to be honest. Um, when's the right time? It, it really, it contextually depends on, you know, your startup and what you're, what you're doing. But a lot of the times, uh, VCs want you to be close to them. Uh, it's quite inconvenient for a venture capitalist to have to, you know, jump on a plane and fly across again, COVID perhaps we're in a situation where we can do more video conferencing. Also, VCs are limited by where they can invest. So some have geographic mandates. Right, right, absolutely. And as well, just like you, I hope that Silicon Valley being the center of you know, the tech world stays in the past and the center of the tech world moves to Los Angeles, where I live. <laughs> but uh, the next question I want to ask you is your initial seed rounds. At the time when you raised your seed round, that was, I believe you mentioned, that was the largest seed round in the Silicon Valley at the time. How did you manage to do this? Well, that, that was a struggle to get there for sure. I mean, I'll walk you through the whole story. And I'll, I'll try to be succinct because there's a lot that happened before that seed round. We were in the UK. We weren't seeing much luck. And we applied to an incubator and the incubator was AngelPad, so an accelerator, right? And we really wanted to get in to the point that we researched who the judges were, and we built video ads targeting those judges, and we advertised them all throughout the internet. Nice. One guy called Gokul Rajaram, who's dear, dear, like friend, and you know, he's we work together now. At the time, though, Gokul was one of the guys who was looking over the. Uh, applications for AngelPad. And we wanted to get his attention. So you're browsing LinkedIn and a picture of Gokul's face would pop up. And you would be like, who, 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 why is Gokul on my, why is there an ad about Gokul? And then the ad would literally say, Gokul needs help, urgent, click now. So people clicked on it. And um, it was a video of me and my co-founder pitching the concept and saying, you know, hey, Gokul, you know, this is Zane and Jack. We're hungry entrepreneurs in the UK. We want to go to your accelerator. I know you work at Facebook. We're going to crush Facebook. We literally said stupid things. Like that. Uh, so obviously that went viral. I mean, it ended up in, I think, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, inbox. And I know Goku got into a little bit of trouble for that. Uh, got a call. We got a call from uh, um, one of the other guys at the incubator, Tomas. And he was like, hey, is this Zane? I said, yeah, it is. Hey, how are you? When can we start? He goes, take those ads down right now. You're causing so much trouble for us. Like, 
go through the typical process, apply. Like we did apply. We didn't hear from you. That's why we built these video ads. <laughs> um, so he was like, all right, okay, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. And, you know, a few days passed. We didn't hear back from them. So we built more video ads targeting their pages. <laughs> And um, in the end, they called us up and they were like, all right, take the video ads down. We told you, just jump on the plane, come out to America. Come out, came out to the U.S. And uh, we were the joke of the class. You know, we were two Brits with weird accents, at least according to, you know, Americans. Although I think Americans have accents, not the British. And um, we're at the incubator and uh, we weren't engineers. We we were pitching a, an idea that didn't make sense at the time and we had to refine it um we didn't come from google or stanford or mit and so we were the joke of the class people didn't think we'd raise anything and uh constant pressure to pivot until we started speaking to customers and we got pre-orders and we we went to one meeting with a customer and we said look if we can help you get users if we can build you a video ad and we can show that in another phone will you pay us per user how much would you pay us per user and they were like oh we'll pay you a dollar I'm like, okay, great. So if I've got you 5,000 users, you'll pay me $5,000? Sure. Okay, great. Can I put that as an LOI? Yeah, sure. Okay, awesome. Went to the next meeting and I increased the number to 10,000 and then 15,000, 20,000. Before you knew it, I had a couple of hundred thousand dollars in pre-orders from a, a good base of customers. Um, we didn't have a, a deck though. I mean, so we had a deck. We didn't have a product. We didn't have a we didn't even have an engineer, but went out to investors and um, showed them, look, we've got pre-orders here. Um, and then one of the investors was someone who had run, was another entrepreneur. He had actually started a competitor and left the competitor. So he invested in us, introduced us to more investors and it just took off. And we were planning to raise about two, $300,000. So demo day came at AngelPad. I went out and I, you know, I horrified everyone. I said at the end of my pitch, so look, we're not actually raising, we're done raising. Everyone was like, well, why are you at demo day? You know, we were supposed to take first look at your startup. I was like, well, look. This was the magic word. I literally said, look, we're pretty much done fundraising. And I meant this with integrity, you know, just a few hundred thousand dollars would raised. I, if there's, a, if there's anyone that can add strategic value, I'm open to exploring, you know, how, how we can work together. I might be able to increase the round size. Oh my God, I was swarmed after the pitch. Literally people came up to me and they were like, great presentation. I've got a check in my pocket. How much, how much can I invest? It's like, wow, this is easy, you know? And 300,000 turned into 500,000 turned into a million. And at this point, we're kind of at the point where, you know, I think we had raised a million on 5 million pre and 1 million became 1.5 million. Now this is getting quite dilutive, you know? And back mm -hmm. then, five was the standard valuation. Damn it. I wish all these entrepreneurs today were raising at 10, you know, it's crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up uh, raising 2 million. Um, the round ballooned. I'm glad I raised the money. Wouldn't have made it if I hadn't raised the money. Uh, we got Google Ventures to come in as well. We got Tim Draper. We got Uncle Capital, you know, Jeff Clavier. We, we we had a really good base of investors. We probably had about, uh, we called it a party round. You know, we, we were probably some of the people that invented the concept. We had so many investors, probably like 20, 30 investors. Um, but it was awesome. You know, uh, everyone added value in the end. And uh, it was one of the largest seed rounds at that time. Now, you know, it's quite common to see seed rounds at that scale. Right, that's true. Now it's common, but the story sounds just epic. So many bold moves there. Uh, yeah. The video ads specifically targeted to that uh, incubator program. That's 
insane. I love it, honestly. Um, but now going back in time, you know, looking back at what you've done, do you think, what would you change in that process? Basically, maybe you would make less bold moves or would you change something? Yeah, I wish I knew the terms I was raising when I wish I understood the term sheet. I, you know, it was more dilutive than I would have liked, but fair enough. I needed the money at the time. There were some terms that were not standard, were not good. There was a 3x liquidation preference. There was quite a high interest rate that was accruing. There were just a lot of nasty things in that term sheet that I didn't really appreciate. You know, it was buried away in the language. Now today, you know, I wish there was the YC or safe note or whatever these standard terms are that protect entrepreneurs. So yeah, that is something I probably would like to have changed. Um, otherwise, um, you know, it worked out well, right? And that's why, you know, you're, I'm probably on the podcast. That's actually true. <laughs> that's why you're on the podcast. And I'm um... Really congrats that it worked out well. Uh, great work there. Uh, but uh, now that we've talked about some mistakes you've done, what do you think was the best thing that you've done? Was it maybe you know, being so bold with that uh, accelerator or when you were targeting them with the ads? Or was it the way you uh, you know, uh, present yourself on the demo day, saying that you don't really need money, you just need strategic investors? or What's the thing that you're like really, really proud of in your fundraising process specifically? I I think it's the fact that we had customer validation and I gotta thank the accelerator for that. They really forced us to pick up the phone, talk to customers. And the hardest thing was what our customers said uh, is not something that investors understood. Uh, investors were, were questioning, is there a need for the product? And they were sick of that to the point where I was like, you know what? Investors don't get it. The customers are begging me to build a solution out. But investors, on the other hand, think I should build something different. And it, that's why I went out and got these pre-orders. So I think the pre-orders was a success. I think just going to customers and being aggressive and telling them, look, if this product is really valuable for you, I, I, I will build this. But I need a commitment from you that you will spend the money with us if we build it. And here's an LOI and, you know, I want you to do reference calls with investors and, and that helped, that de-risked it. And um, once a few investors came on, then everyone followed them. Mm-hmm. Right, that's actually very true that LOIs are pretty strong specifically for investors. Um, and here we come kind of organically to your advice to early stage founders. What would you recommend them to do? The first thing to do for that you know, early stage founder once they're trying to start fundraising? Oh, so much advice I'd give to the early stage founder, right? Including myself. There's, there's things I did that I, I were amateur mistakes that I, I, I can't believe people invested in me. Oh my God. I mean, the way I think <laughs> thing, it, it makes me cringe. Uh, more so how I, I looked at some emails in my inbox and, you know, I harassed investors so much, you know, <laughs> I didn't hear from you, you know, please, I want to jump on the phone with you, explain, you know, why not or whatever. Um, I, I put a lot of pressure, but you have to be like that, right, to to succeed. Um, you know, I'm 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 a VC now. I, I'm I'm an investor. Uh, I've probably made about 12, 13 investments today. And uh, at Bluefield, we run a prop tech venture capital fund. So we invest in real estate focused startups at the seed round, at the Series A, 
I even have my own uh, podcast on this topic where we interview people at PropTechVC. You can just go to PropTechVC.com and I get asked this question a lot. What advice would you give to the first time founder? And each time literally is different, right? Um, here, here are some age old principles that have worked. Raise more than you think you need and raise when you don't need the money. Those two are very, very true because the leverage is you know, with you when you don't need the money. Raise more than you think you need is true because uh, my, if I hadn't raised that $2 million, wow, I would have been in trouble. When we closed the Series A, we only had a few months of cash left in the bank. So imagine if I'd raised 1.5, I probably wouldn't have been able to make the moves I made to raise that Series A round that we raised after the seed round. I would um, also say, you know, be obsessed with customers, uh, use the investor fundraising process to get introductions to customers. I found it amazing when uh, I was trying to get the attention of customers. And when I went to investors, I'd ask them, you know, can you introduce me to your portfolio company? You know, maybe it's good for you to get feedback from your portfolio company and we'd appreciate the introduction. It shows us the value you can add and we want the customer. Next thing you know, you're talking to the founder and CEO of a, you know, a great portfolio company that you want as a customer. So if you are in the B2B space, um, or you want to do a strategic partnership, check out the portfolios of investors and ask for introductions. Investors generally like making introductions if they're serious about you. Um, so that works well. Uh, here's one too. Um, founders like helping each other, but founders don't like it when you swarm them and you're like, hey, I want to catch up with you. And, and then, you know, at the end of the conversation, can you introduce me to investors? Well, Build a relationship with the founder and appreciate that if the founder starts introducing every entrepreneur that comes to him and introduces to him or her, right, introduces the person to one of their investors, if that keeps on happening over and over again, eventually you're going to start referring low quality startups. So founders uh, usually are respected when they vet things and only introduce when it's a true fit. So appreciate that. If you're asking a founder for an introduction, uh, she or he, um, that's a big ask. That's a big ask for the founder. So build a relationship with the founder. Make sure there's a fit because it's quite awkward when you're asked. All right? I got asked all the time and it's very awkward because you want to help. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it's like you're contacting me out of the blue. I haven't talked to you for so long or it's our first conversation. Now you want me to intro you to every investor that's invested in me. Well, it doesn't work like that. You know, Let's build a relationship. Let's make sure it's a fit. And Make me excited about your product to the point where I'm proactively recommending, you know? And um, yeah, so I think just ap appreciate that. I don't think that's been said before or I haven't, I was never given that advice. And, you know, founders are amazing people to get introductions to their investors, but just be, just be respectful for how you ask for it. Absolutely. Great advice, both in terms of, you know, asking for VCs to introduce uh, you to their portfolio companies and to make sure that, you know, the founders that you're trying to become friends with are actually your friends, not like you, you know, on the second yeah. call, you'll be like, don't, hey, introduce Honestly, it's kind of a douchebag move for you to just reach out to someone <laughs> and then, you know, dish them after that, right? Generally, like, you know, explain why it would be a good fit. Do the research and homework, right? I noticed that you've raised from these investors. This particular investor is really interesting for us. Um, how, you know, you don't, no pressure if you don't think it's a fit, right? Also, you could ask them, check check with them if they'd like an intro, right? And make it easy. I'm, I definitely think founders need to help each other. So I, I do want to make that clear. Just, um, 
you know, be respectful and put in the hard work. Don't don't leave it to the founder to uh to kind of do all of that. And and you know, don't ask for the intro just necessarily like the first time you meet them. Um, it's just you know, I know it's convenient, but it's not cool, right? People like catching up, helping founders like helping other founders, um, but they feel kind of used if it's like, thanks for the advice, forget what you said, introduce me now. <laughs> right yeah it all boils down to just don't be a douchebag damn it just right. be respectful um so here now that we've discussed all those super important things to be honest um and thanks for that great advice by the way yeah so my next question is about really quick about acquisition how did it happen in terms of did you actually plan for that acquisition from the early days or did you just you know uh, did it just happen Vongo had a lot of uh, acquisition interest throughout, even in the earliest days, we had, uh, you know, interest from, from great tech companies and it, the offers were never high enough to, to go after. Right. But I felt good knowing that we were a very profitable company. I think towards the end, we were doing 60, 70 plus million in, in profits every year which is crazy, right? Because mm -hmm. $25 million in every quarter, we were literally getting that in the bank. So we knew there was a value to the business. Um, and, you know, that, that put it, that put the minimum value in place. And uh, we, we ran a good process. We had good bankers involved and the outcome was fantastic for all shareholders. You know, it was a life-changing outcome for so many of our employees and even some of our earliest angel investors this was a huge return i mean you know you invested a four five million dollar valuation and the company sells for seven or eighty million dollars just mm -hmm. uh, seven years later it was it was great that's great and yet yeah, that sounds like an epic exit and here on this really positive note we're coming on to our last uh question which is a call to action so what's the one thing you think the listener should do as soon as the episode is over so if you um, are, you know, we, we look at prop tech investments. So uh, you can go to proptechvc.com and you can see on there uh, some great interviews. Uh, we've got, you know, our, our, we've got a YouTube channel. We've got our own podcast too. So if someone wants to kind of build a relationship and get to know what uh, we're up to, subscribe to that. Uh, also, it's a, it's a great opportunity to, uh, you know, hear founders in that space specifically. So real estate technology um and the other action point you know get back to work and start you know get back to work and start building your company um you know it's going to be a, a long long process it's not an overnight success there's a lot that happens people only read the headlines so much happens before that you know success it's 99 of it is, is so much effort and then that last one percent it, it looks easy and that that's where all the returns come from uh that's also the case with you know scaling revenues Getting that first customer, getting the first hundred thousand dollars, getting the first million dollars is really hard. The next million dollars, the next fifty million, the next hundred million, the next three four hundred million dollars in revenue come way way easier than that first initial. So you know, for any listeners who are in that situation, <laughs> hustle. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take time, but remember, it's worth it. Right, it's really worth it. And by the way, I'll make sure that I leave a link in the description of this episode to your podcast so that everyone can check out what's going on in the prop tech field. Awesome.
And yeah, my call to action, as usually, go to the description of this episode, take a look at the podcast of Zane, and I'll probably leave a link to another uh, PropTech VC, uh, to the interview that I had with another PropTech VC. So that is for those who are interested in PropTech. Go take a look at the description of this episode. There should be something interesting for you. And don't forget to have a good day. All right.